When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. Scott Tobias. And behind the boards this week is Genevieve Kosky. Hi, Genevieve. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we have two stories set in competitive corners of the arts, both presented in eye-searing color. Tasha, can you tell us a little bit about our pairing? Sure. We've had a hard time forgetting Nicholas Winding Refn's new movie, The Neon Demon, so we knew we had to talk about it. To bring you all behind the curtain a bit, we mulled quite a few options for pairings, including David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, which was an obvious influence, and Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, which mines a similar vein of Hollywood darkness. But the movie we settled on, in part due to a reader's suggestion, in part because Scott argued for it so vehemently, and in part because we thought it would be a lot of fun, is Dario Argento's classic 1977 horror movie Suspiria, another tale of female rivalry that plays out in lurid colors with more than a little violence. Just a dash of violence. Uh, This may be (laughs) the most not for the faint of heart episode we've done now that I think of it. So consider this a warning. If you're unprepared for discussion that involves buckets of brightly colored blood, a man eating service animal, necrophilia, cannibalism, and one extremely memorable instance of indigestion, maybe consider playing our Good Dinosaur Toy Story episode again. It's sure to be less harrowing. Madame Blank. Yes. Susie Banyan. Our new student. Oh, yes. Excuse me, gentlemen. Of course, madam. You're pretty. Very pretty indeed. They're policemen. I knew a woman called Banyan years ago in New York. Carol Banyan. She's my aunt. Good. She's a marvelous woman, a friend and benefactress of artists everywhere. I'm delighted to have her niece here. Well... I offer you our Academy's official welcome in the name of our directress, who unfortunately is not here at the moment. She's traveling abroad. Thank you, Thank you. Uh, Albert, please wait for me upstairs. He's my nephew. I'm very attached to him. Well, I must tell you what I have to say very quickly, because those gentlemen are waiting for me. Something terrible, truly horrible, has happened. One of our students, Pat Hingle, who was expelled just yesterday for improper conduct, was murdered last night by some madman. It's a frightening story. But I always warn our students, don't I, Miss Tanner? I tell them to be careful not to get involved with questionable friendships. Now, what I wanted to tell you is that your room here isn't free. Just a slight hit. Yes, but don't worry. We've already found you a place to stay with one of our third-year students who lives in town. You'll have to pay 50 of your American dollars a week, but it's a good price, and you can deduct it from your fee here. And now I entrust you to the care of Miss Tanner, one of our veteran teachers here. Don't be upset if she seems a little stern or silly. It's only her manner. She's even that way with me. She really is an invaluable teacher. I do tell her Come with me. And now, I want to start this week's episode with a seemingly unrelated topic that I promise will be relevant to Suspiria. It has to do with the word dated. I hear that word a lot, particularly when people talk about most special effects-driven films that predate Jurassic Park. But it gets thrown around in other instances, too when talking about acting styles or cinematic techniques or fashions or any other aspect of a movie that establish it as a product of a certain time. 
And honestly, I'd be fine never hearing the word dated again. It's rooted in a notion that entertainment follows an ever-improving arc. If the filmmakers of yesterday would have known then what we know now, the logic seems to go, imagine how much better their movies would be. If they had just made that dress a little less outrageous or tidied up that jerky stop-motion animation or made that actor's delivery a little less arch, it would be so much easier to buy. It's a way of thinking that reduces the past to a series of imperfect reflections of reality. But why would anyone want that? Consider, and here's where we circle back to Suspiria, the blood in the movies of the 1970s. Many 70s movies, especially those likely to play drive-ins and grindhouses, favored a version of blood that looked little like anything that flows through the human body. Instead, it resembles something from the brighter end of the red palette at Benjamin Moore. You can see it splattered in everything from kung fu movies to black exploitation films to George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, and it's all over Suspiria, from the unforgettable first scene to the bizarre climax. There are two ways of looking at this, as an illusion-shattering bit of fakery that belongs to another time, it looks nothing like blood, or as part of the dreamlike fabric of the movie. I've already tipped my hand as to which way I prefer to see it, and it's how I think of most elements that get dubbed dated or unbelievable. Movies are illusions we share together. You're not really watching it right if you don't give yourself over to that illusion. And some movies are more dreamlike than others, which brings us back again to Suspiria, the pinnacle of Dario Argento's career and the pinnacle of a certain kind of cheerfully unsavory Hitchcock-inspired school of Italian filmmaking. Argento made some of the defining films of the Italian giallo school, pulpy, violent thrillers that thrived in the late 60s and early 70s. Suspiria, by virtue of having supernatural elements, doesn't quite match that description, but it plays more like a giallo that's been cross-pollinated with some horror DNA than a straight horror movie. It creates a world of perpetual danger, especially for women. The twist here, or at least one of the twists, is that the threat mostly comes from women. Lead actress Jessica Harper, a familiar figure to fans of cult movies thanks to this film, Fan of the Paradise and Shock Treatment, plays Susie, an American ballet student who enrolls in the exclusive Tans Dance Academy in the German city of Freiburg. From the moment she lands at the airport, something seems off. It's pouring rain, the journey to the academy takes her past some forbidding images, and when she arrives, she's not only denied admission, she watches as Pat, another student, flees in terror. It's as if she and we have stepped into a nightmare, even before the movie offs Pat in an elaborate death scene that's as disturbing as it is elaborately staged. And so it goes for the rest of the movie. At Tans, Susie encounters jealous classmates and certain faculty members played by stars with long storied careers, specifically Alita Valley and Joan Bennett the usual dancing school stuff. She also encounters a reign of maggots, disappearing classmates, untrustworthy doctors who drug her, and a series of clues that eventually lead her to conclude, correctly, that the school doubles as a haven for a witch's coven. It's a fundamentally silly plot, but then plot isn't exactly Argento's main concern. In fact, plot is never Argento's main concern. He's more interested in creating an unsettling atmosphere defined by bold, sometimes clashing colors, in which to stage elaborate set pieces that march various characters to their deaths. Susie can't wake up from the bad dream in which she finds herself, and for 98 disturbing, weird, thrilling minutes, neither can we. It's an illusion painted in blood that looks nothing like blood, and is all the more enthralling for it. So, Suspiria, can we try to make some sense of this crazy movie, or will its insanity defy our attempts to talk about it? Uh, well, you know, let me uh, let me just spend a few minutes ranting about the occult. I, I can't tell oh, you. Oh, the what, occult. Uh, the occult. Yeah, yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> Which that's I mean, that is one of the things that uh, that most stuck with me. Well, we should probably at this point mention the traditional Italian way of making mm-hmm. films. Which yeah. Is every actor speaks their own language and then it gets dubbed into the language in which it's being distributed. So you don't necessarily. And sometimes it's the actors doing the lines and sometimes it's not. I think with that weird delivery of the occult, I think it's a case of the actor actually doing the line in English, but not knowing how to pronounce the word. <laughs> for, well, for sure. And two different characters, I think, pronounce it occult, uh, which suggests that uh, Dario Gento just didn't know, like, or that nobody on set knew that that isn't how it's pronounced. Um, yeah, I, the the dub of Suspiria that I believe we all saw, that as far as I know is the only way to see the film in English, is, uh, is off-putting in a lot of ways because the performances are so flat and strident in a way that actually fits really well, I think, with uh, kind of the outsizedness of the entire film, but that I, I found really distracting. But the, the awkward thing, just it sticks <laughs> with me because I, I find it hilarious because it comes at such a serious moment where you're 
getting this core dump of, of key information about how to read the rest of the movie. This is, I believe you said this is your first experience with uh, Mr. Argento's work, Tasha? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd seen Suspiria before, but uh, this, this was the first Argento film I ever saw. Well, yeah, I think that element is interesting to me because I, you, you really have to write off certain parts of his movies that in, in most other movies are absolutely essential. <laughs> Things like acting mm. and character. I mean, I think you make an argument for some of the performances in, in this film and we'll make it later but just that that reality that we're talking about where you have to um you know dub in your lines and, and you have all these you know this sort of uh, uh international euro pudding cast it, tasty euro pudding delicious <laughs> euro pudding I, I, I mean it's that that's just an asterisk that kind of goes along with any argento film i think yeah and I, I think part of what sets this one apart though is the flatness of the performances you mentioned are it's very much there i think Jessica Harper really helps a lot, though, because I think she's such a a fun presence and like sort of this square American pragmatism in the middle of all this weird European decadence. And the, I just, I'm just I'm a fan. I just like her in this and fan of the Paradise and Shock Treatment and other things I've seen her in. So she has that sort of like you know kind of husky delivery, but also these questioning eyebrows that make you think that like no matter what, she's not necessarily buying all the craziness that's around her in some way. And it's not she's kind of at a remove from it. I, I'm I think that that helps too. I think this also has. I mean, I, I, I've seen a lot of Argento films, and this is actually the one whose plot I can recall <laughs> because yeah. so much of them are about. It's not that he doesn't have themes or interests, or uh, it's not just empty sensation, but they tend to be more. It tends to be not so much driven by the story. Uh, yeah, I was actually kind of kind of object to that element a little bit because I think you're, you're talking about Argento films before Suspiria, the the classic giallo films, the right. Bird with the Crystal Plumage, or was it Four Flies on Gray, gray Velvet? Is I that what it's so, called? Yeah. I mean, those are mysteries. And so mm-hmm. and so the plotting is, I, I think, crucial to those because they have big twists and, and uh, you know, a lot of complicated elements to them, a lot, a lot of strands uh, in Duder's head, as, uh, to quote the Big Lebowski. <laughs> but I think that he, I think it is maybe correct to say that he gets away from that a little bit here, not all, not all the way. There are there are some twists and turns, and, and more, kind of more later. that away from that throughout his career. Yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's maybe part of his uh, evolution is sort of leaving those elements behind in order to focus more on... Um, art and and abstraction and color and and set pieces and the other the things that makes Suspiria great it's impossible to watch an Argento film without thinking of Alfred Hitchcock which is an acknowledged even if it weren't an acknowledged influence it would be a pretty hard to miss influence Uh, there's kind of kind of like with De Palma there's this sort of sense that that there's that Hitchcock's children are taking some of his techniques and some of his themes and material and pushing them further than, than Hitchcock could to, to more extremes and kind of more absurd lengths too. There's a lot of that in, in play here. Where, where do you, where do you feel that this does right by its influences? I mean, I feel that he, he takes a lot from Hitchcock in terms of how to build suspense. There's some really suspenseful sequences in this film. And it makes me wish – there's also just a lot of slackness. There's a lot of places where I really wish the editing was tighter, like in the, the scene with the blind man and his dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you compare that to scenes like uh, – I mean, the, the scene that stands out most for me here is the scene where Susie's classmate uh, has locked herself in – an attic room and a knife comes through the door as someone tries to to jimmy the door open mm-hmm. and that scene like the way it's constructed feels so hitchcockian in terms of there's a an obvious present threat but there's also an unknownness to the threat you don't know who that is but you know exactly what their intention is you can see very clearly that whoever it is is going to get in you know what's going to happen next and then but at the same time like the the actress's reaction is so much more more a like an Italian horror reaction. Like I, I don't see Hitchcock, at least up until like the time of Frenzy, where he started getting a lot more lurid. I don't see him doing that kind of like huge overplayed, terrified reaction, which is the stuff of nightmares. Mm-hmm. Um, that entire sequence feels so much like a nightmare, and it's just this really interesting confluence of like Roman Polanski level histrionic uh, reaction with like Hitchcockian setup. I just I find it really interesting. The punchline to that whole suspense sequence, like I know it's. Coming in every time I still just flinch. It's so 
horrible. The razor well, wire. Is it the razor wire? Why do they have a room? Why do they have a razor wire storage room? Why do they have a razor wire storage room that can only be accessed through windows? <laughs> why does she jump into it? And why does it horrify us so much, even though, like, it's a very fakey scene in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see, you can tell the actress rolling around in it uh, is not actually taking wounds from it. And the scene goes on and on and on and on forever. But it's still so horrifying because there's just, you can viscerally feel what it would feel like to land in a pile of razor wire and not be able to get up because every time you try to get up, your feet are being cut. That's kind of my feeling to this whole movie, though, is that it's, it skirts ridiculousness, sometimes edges over into ridiculousness, but it's still upsetting and terrifying. Yet at the same time, like like uh, when I watch that opening scene, my reaction is kind of always the same thing, where it's like, this is suspenseful, this is you know kind of horrifying, it gets worse and worse, the violence is, is grotesque. But I also find myself kind of like laughing too at the same time. And it's not not laugh- laughing at the movie, it's not like this is a silly movie, but it's like this it, it is at it's such an extreme in terms of of the effects it creates, you know, you know, using the tools of suspense filmmaking. Yeah, you know, I I guess I laugh at that sequence too, uh, just at the audacity of it and how far Argento's willing to go. I mean, you you've got, you know, multiple stab wounds. You you see, you know, the beating heart which also gets stabbed. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, she drops through the stained glass. There's the hanging with the cord. I mean, how many times you can only die once, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, but it it uh, really does feel like he he could not decide which way to kill this actress, so he just used all of them, all of the methods. Um, but the craft is just so stunning, and it starts from the very beginning when Susie arrives at the airport. I mean, instantly, um, you know, he establishes this menacing atmosphere so early and so relentlessly, but that by by the time we get to the first murder, we're also we're already kind of exhausted and heaving a bit. I mean, to me, you know, one of the, the most shocking elements of that entire section is that it breaks so sharply and unexpectedly from Susie's perspective. Because I think the film primes us to stay with her from the first frame to the last. And really, we are, for the rest of the movie right by her side but you know suddenly the camera the perspective camera perspective turns omniscient and we're not with Susie anymore and we're, we're following uh, uh this this woman to who's going to get get killed and i i found that actual that transition almost as jarring as is uh what ends up happening afterwards oh i, I think it's more jarring i i on i will go out on a limb and say i think that that uh, element of the story is badly told because you haven't really been introduced to Pat, well, and because they're both. Be, why would you want to be? You would it, the transition from Susie from being with Susie to being with Pat is very unclear because you. It's not that you need a lengthy establishing scene to know who Pat is. Mm-hmm. It's that you don't really know either of these actresses at this point, and then suddenly you like you know them both as almost anonymous uh, figures in the rain who are distressed. And I mean, I we had to. I would watch this with my husband and we both will watch the scene for a couple minutes before realizing that we had moved on to a new actress. And I remember that throwing mm. me the first time that I watched it as but, well. But the film lingers so well, you know, she pulls up uh, in the rain to the academy. Uh, you get a very long shot because they, they come back to it based on what Pat is her name mm-hmm. and what she says. So, so, so she's seeing this, this woman in distress and saying something. And, and we know that she is, you know, she's a new person and, and, and she, this is her first impression of the Academy as, this, the, as another dancer fleeing in terror. And, and so at least that character is established in that respect. And then we get, I think, a very deliberate and effective move away from Susie's perspective into into another person's perspective. I don't feel like it's an accident or it's sloppy. I feel like it's a deliberate and super effective uh, piece of storytelling. Mm, not for me. I mean, I think that the the POV switch, I mean, it's very psycho. It is very Hitchcockian. Yeah, but, but like almost, almost more subtle in a way. But the way it's uh, <laughs> subtle. That, no, I, this I mean, is, this is not that, a film that I mean, I'm going to no, use but, the but, subtle but, Right, but ever. I mean, in terms of psycho, I mean, you know when the break in psycho sure. happens. I mean, and that, and that is, that is it, this is something that um, hits you in a different way, I would say. So it may, maybe subtle is not the right word, but it is, I don't know, it's bold and it's a real, it's a choice. It's a real choice. It's not any kind of a, I don't think it's Argento dropping the ball in terms of telling a story. I, I think we're talking about different things. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about how the editing does not explain to us that we're following Pat rather than Susie. And I, as, giving that they're both actresses of a similar, you know, height and weight and hair color and hair length. And at that point in the film, hysteria, 
uh, with overdubbed voices that makes it hard to tell them apart. The transition, we see them both at the the school. Mm -hmm. We see Pat running through the woods. We see Susie unable to get in and then getting back in the car. And then we see the woman like arriving at the giant hotel or apartment building, wherever it is where her friend lives. And it took me a while to realize that we weren't continuing Susie's story, that we'd made the transition. Uh, The camera doesn't continue to follow Pat. There's a huge break in time there between one of them gets in the car, one of them runs through the woods. And what your expectations are at that point is hysterical woman running alone through the woods in a rainstorm. Something's going to happen to her. And instead what happens is she shows up, we know not where, where is that building? There's just, there's a lack of spatial sense to the whole thing. I get it. Okay. So, I mean, like, so theoretically then, if... If Argento had kept the camera moving and followed followed Pat from from the spot, then, then you wouldn't have had. If we'd much even of an had issue. some sense of the, like that, there was a uh, she's in the town. We could because okay. I, I keep going back to that shot in the woods because it's so beautifully shot. It's yeah. so memorable. It's no, so okay. I, I primal that. and terrifying. Yeah. And then to transition directly from that for, to her, her being in this like very like cold, elaborate, dramatic space mm-hmm. without really realizing that it's her okay. is very jarring. Yeah, maybe. I can see that. I think that if Hitchcock were telling the same story, he would tell it with a, a little more like linear clarity, such that, as with Psycho, it would be very clear where we transitioned from one to the other. That makes sense. Um, yeah, and I mean, we talk about, I, for some reason, Hitchcock doesn't always, doesn't come to mind as much. as uh, uh, I, I think when you, I guess when you all are talking about you know, putting together suspense set pieces, then maybe then it comes comes to mind. But one big difference to me between Argento and Hitchcock is Argento's disinterest in psychological realism, mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps his disinterest in puzzling out the motives of his characters. Period. You look at a movie like Psycho, where much of the horror is manifested from you know deep seated desires and derangements within the characters. In Suspiria, the horror is external. Argento's primary focus is to use the tools of the medium to make the setting as vivid and menacing as possible, which means drawing on a lot of mythological nonsense about witches and whatnot. And there's an indifference to characterization and, well, acting to some degree that's readily apparent, uh, but an intense interest in experimenting with sound and image and using them to unnerve the audience. You know, it's pure cinema. If Argento weren't so skilled at color, composition, sound, and effects, then I think uh, we would be left with almost nothing to talk about, right? And I think just as interesting as talking about his influences is talking about people who are influenced by him. I mean, there were times during Suspiria that I felt like I was watching a David Lynch film. You know, the the intense use of, of like red backdrops of like eerie small children um cur- a couple of curtains and that made me think of david lynch curtains too. reflections like long like gravid painful pauses and the soundscape like the, the the rich hollow echoing soundscape like behind all of these things the scene where Susie runs across the the cook and the little boy in the hallway just feels so much so much like david lynch oh god yes and the sense throughout this movie of that sense of nightmarishness that sense of being in a completely different space that's outside of any sort of like physical reality. Hitchcock was very tied to physical reality apart from like weird little sort of dreamy sidelines from time to time and stuff like suspicion. But he, I mean, he was very much a, a pragmatist, as you say. I mean, he, he delved into like actual psychology. Mm-hmm. And I think Argento is just much more interested in, in the viscerality and the adrenaline of nightmare feeling. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I do, I do think with Hitchcock's a lot of that, the action is determined by, psychology and and and, uh, and is reflected as, as much. I mean, he was a Freudian. He was interested in uh, uh, you know, especially you know, like Marnie or or uh, uh, you know, Psycho. I mean, these these are films that that where the horror is comes starts from the inside and comes out. And I don't think that's Argento's approach uh, to horror at all. Uh, well, Scott, you talked about you talked about how everything is here for effect. Everything is for for maximum cinematic effect. We should talk about a couple of key collaborators here. Um, One is uh, the cinematographer Luciana Tavoli, who has worked, continues to work with Argento, also worked with Michelangelo Antonioni, uh, Barbara Schroeder. But if he were to like hang up his his uh, his lens after this, this would be, you know, he'd be remembered. There's some amazing things in this movie that the colors we'll get into more later. But but um, but just the fact that there are shots that 
seemed to have four different lighting schemes within <laughs> the frame. I don't, and like those amazing uh, shots of like this, the room is one color, but there's a doorway that's sort of like blaring another color too. It's, it's, um, it, it, it is incredible. And the other thing to talk about is, is Goblin, yeah. which uh, mm-hmm. performs the uh, score, uh, which where they, they, it's a band, it's an Italian rock band, mm-hmm. um, but probably at this point best known for score music, especially this one, but a couple of other Argento films, a couple other horror films as well. Was he a member of that ba- of Goblin? No, but he contributed to the music of, of okay. this one. It's not the same movie without either of these contributors is it no it really isn't i mean the the soundtrack here i think is just is about as indelible as and kind of reminiscent of uh, john carpenter movies there's just that uh like the very artificial sound to yeah, it i think john carpenter was watching you know this is yeah. a lot like the halloween the halloween theme in some ways yeah that that kind of the the keyboard like rushing up and down giving you that kind of that intense sense of like a racing heart, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's so repetitious. It's It becomes hypnotic. It becomes part of the dream experience. Uh, Scott was, in fact, just before we started recording, uh, displaying the fact that his f- phone's ringtone is uh, the Suspiria theme. And <laughs> as soon as he started playing it, I like the hackles on the back of my neck went up because by the end of the movie, you're so conditioned to understand that when that music starts playing, something really uncanny and unpleasant <laughs> is about to happen. And then my instinct was uh, to reach for my phone. <laughs> <laughs> when the movie started because the score that that theme comes in right away and it's like oh god i gotta call i'm just starting to watch a movie now i'm gonna call so things uh they backfire and of course there was a, a screening uh i was telling everyone earlier that i was at toronto for a press screening and somehow i always have my phone on, on vibrate and it was not and uh that was a humiliation what, for me. What movie was it? Do you remember? It was it was the guy who did Revanche, which is a film I love and is on Criterion. He did a follow up film that was I don't even remember the name of it. It was really disappointing, but of course this that call happened at the most important possible part of the film. I think it was it was awful, and uh, I, I it was about as embarrassing as it gets. But in any case, the score it's one of my favorites, obviously, or I wouldn't have it as a ringtone. You know, I assume I assume that that chiming theme is owned to synthesizer. Right, um, it certainly sure. sounds very synthetic. Yeah, but what struck me this time around is how other instrumental flourishes and sort of guttural sounds and a little bit of guitar, I think, in there too, uh, punctuate the music. You know, Suspiria means it translates as size, and uh, you should spell that S I G. H-S, size. And, and those sort of breathy, sinister noises are threaded into the soundtrack to really great effect. Uh, you get this sub- sense of, well, whispers, you know, of something something secret and something conspiratorial that, that's going on um, in, in the film. And it's uh, kind of is channeled through uh, that score, I think, quite beautifully. As far as the cinematography goes, like, oh, again, we're going to talk about color in more detail, but you just you can't underrate the degree to which this is a, a film about color. The The story is told via like these these bright, lurid, intense colors that stand in for all of these bright, lurid, intense emotions that are being experienced. Accomplished by, if I understand correctly, stretching colored velvet in front of lights instead of using like plastics for it. Mm, neat. I would think that, <laughs> that would it is an actual technicolor film, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and one of the last. Although while we're at it, we should also give a shout out to uh, Giuseppe Bassan, the production designer, because uh, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that a lot of these, I like some of them may be locations, I don't know, but some of these spaces are just so unlikely uh, that yeah. I assume that they're yeah. invented let, for let the, the film. Let the razor wire room. Wait, you don't have a razor wire room? So, yeah, some of the some of the the wallpaper. Is the incredible. wallpaper is incredible. I love the wallpaper so much. <laughs> I would not want any of that wallpaper in my home. <laughs> it, 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 there are times when the production design of this film, frankly, upstages the the actors and the action. Mm-hmm. There are just there's so many moments where somebody walks into a room with relatively ordinary intent. And it's difficult to follow what's going on because, well, if you're me, you're looking at those like bizarre patterns or sculptures or whatever that are are climbing the walls. Yeah, and all that all the stained glass and uh, 
yeah, it's striking to look at. It's I, I'm not a very good I'm not very good at determining the symbolism of certain colors. I mean, red. I think we can talk about <laughs> uh, we talk about blood and violence and intensity and in sex off, often, but other colors, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of at a loss. I mean, but luckily, well, red is a dominant. There's so much red dominant, in this film. Uh, part of this movie. Beyond symbolism, though, there's also the way they're put together to kind of sickening effect. Like some of the color contrasts in here just make you feel uneasy looking at them. Like sort of the the yellow next to the red like that shade of yellow and that shade of red together it's just it's 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 something that's striking but doesn't doesn't necessarily please the eye to look at it you know you know what else really uh kind of drives that uncanny feeling is the way the sets are built to dwarf the the characters you know from the moment that pat first walked well pat in the woods as well but from the moment pat first walks into the lobby of the the place where she's seeking refuge she just seems so dwarfed by it and we see that over and over again at the school these like vast echoing spaces uh that that people are stuck in we see it uh, during the scene with the, the blind man and his dog outdoors there's just a sense of the indifference of the world that they're in and then when everything closes in like when you're stuck in a small room that happens to be where all of the razor wire is stored uh the claustrophobia gets the the contrast of the claustrophobia becomes really striking i guess i never really even thought about where pat and her pat's friend lives it seems to be i guess she seems to live in an apartment but it looks nothing like an apartment building and they also seem to be the only two residents in this place, too. Which is also very nightmarish. That right. whole scene where Pat's being murdered for like 25 minutes <laughs> in, in every way that Argento could come up with. And her mm-hmm. friend is running from door to door, beating on the door, crying for help. It is possible that there are people behind every door just going, no, I, I don't want to get involved. But there is sort of a sense that they're the only people there. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, which is fine. Again, in the context of the, of the film. I don't think practical thoughts like why why is this giant building <laughs> unoccupied? I don't know. It's not something I think uh, yeah. about. No, I don't think anybody's questioning it. I I think it's that feeling of a, the nightmare where you're you're running and you can't run fast enough. You're calling for help and nobody's answering or nobody nobody seems to hear you. <laughs> it's all the 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 rich red uh, meat of the subconscious. Yeah, um, and it's and I think this is when we do kind of return. To Susie's perspective for the rest of, of the movie, we can share in her sense of disorientation because the moment she has, you talked about that that great scene in the hallway. At that point, she's is deliberately weakened or assaulted, I guess, by all of these uh, strange things. By by that, and that was like a reflection that she was she was looking at, and she ended up getting a nosebleed, and then she gets this wine that she has to drink every every night, and that, obviously that has some some sort of terrible. Uh, effect on her and um when when she becomes a resident of this academy we step into her nightmare along with her one of the most horrifying moments in the movie in a very simple way is when she decides she's not going to drink the drugged wine and she dumps it out and it's it's paint thick i mean (laughs) like there's just sort of a sense there of oh she's been putting that into her body and it won't even come off porcelain (laughs) what what has she been drinking (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it just it feels it feels very deliberate yeah you know that is that is not an accident can we also get a shout out for the maggot wrangler in this film yeah <laughs> incredible that oh, sequence is great i really love the the bit where they uh after the maggot uh scene where they have to all sleep uh in a different space like is, is it a just like a gym or something or yeah. what is it it's one of the practice the, rooms yeah, right. oh my god it's so it's so beautiful and it's, it's so strikingly lit by, and by, the lights, <laughs> lights go down it becomes like a different almost like a different room it becomes yeah. a bordello i mean yeah. it, it honestly like i it made me laugh because it's just <laughs> now over here we have uh sexy female forms posturing uh behind like a gauzy filter like backlit mm-hmm. and for a moment when the the guy pops over the the top to wave i was like Oh, they divided up the men and the women, but then we find out no, it's it's a woman on the other side, including the the terrifying founder. Uh, right. Which, if you want to talk about sound design, just her breathing becoming such a theme throughout the film is, uh, it, I mean, it's it's terrifying. And again, it becomes a cue whenever you hear that wheezy breathing, something terrible is going to happen. Yeah, for sure. I love that. Because when you were were you talking about you were you were dissing earlier the the scene with the dog attacking uh the the blind man uh saying that was not as well constructed as you'd hoped it goes on too long mm. i think i think that uh i mean man that scene is so dated it's just so dated <laughs> gosh i like that scene 
Why, do, why do you like much. that scene, Mr. World's Biggest Dog Lover who can't bear to see uh, bad things happen uh, to dogs? You know, nothing, what happened? Turn it off. nothing bad happened to the, the dog. dog. Yeah, the dog gets a nice meal. The <laughs> dog's fine. Yeah. yeah. Oh, dog's, dog, the dog is liberated from... Uh, from its owner, who, <laughs> whose neck it uh, chews on. Uh, There's such a feeling of dread in that scene. Mm-hmm. There's such a feeling of the the buildings looming over yeah. him and the deep, rich blacks behind the buildings that makes it seem like there's nothing there except the facades. Mm-hmm. His his superstitious horror, the camera pushing in on that eagle and the sense of something flying over him. It's all great, but I think it's too protracted. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's a it's a, a game of inches <laughs> in terms of whether uh, how effective uh, uh, that sequence is. But uh, that was one where uh, I really would strongly credit the cinematographer for the lighting effects because I really I did like the atmosphere of that, and that wasn't that was not an interior; that was an exterior with these, as you said, facades. They had to be been facades, and it's just it's it's an exterior, but it's really unreal and unlike anything I've I've ever seen. That's one of my favorite Argento sequences. Period. Um, but there's lots of them. What what is the tagline for this film? It, ha- it has one of my favorite taglines. Oh yeah, the only thing more terrifying than the last twelve minutes of this film are the first ninety two. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, though I would, though I would say, really, the first bit is the best bit of the. Whole yeah, I, if if I have a if I have a, a complaint about Suspiria is that the finale is a little. It's fine. It's good, and then it ends, and it seems like you don't really necessarily get the full payoff you want for from for uh, the rest of the film. No, I I I I, I agree with that. Um, but it, it's really that opening that kind of really knocks your socks off. Yeah, the problem with that tagline is if you parse it, it basically says the ending of this film is a huge letdown compared to the setup. <laughs> That's true. It's still kind of an unusual tagline, though. It is I an like unusual it. tagline. It's 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 memorable. Yeah. It's just it, it does. I'm not sure how much. Uh, I think you're just saying the whole movie scary, Tasha. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe one, maybe uh, some of it slightly more slightly scarier than the other. <laughs> Hmm. but still scary so we are in a film and it's deeply committed to a couple of different genres giallo and and horror that involve endangering uh women is there anything subversive about the way suspiria does this maybe simply by virtue of villains being women being in a a mostly female space etc etc or are we are the thrills here thanks to the usual male gaze driven women in peril stuff I, I don't think the film subverts the slasher genre all that much. Uh, it is about women being stalked and killed. But I, I wonder how much the source of that violence matters when we think about the film in relation to feminism. You know, A, a Coven of Witches is responsible for unleashing evil, but I'm curious whether you would define the actual forces that, that stalk and kill the dancers as masculine. We'll talk about it later, but it seems seems to me that the, the neon demon was all is all about making that invisible presence you know the that male gaze you know bringing that out into the open making that something explicitly to talk about uh but i'm not convinced that argento has the same thing in mind he does however i think have a surprisingly nuanced sense of the dynamic between these dancers which is which does have elements of jealousy and rivalry but also uh you know friendship and esprit de corps as they are battling this this uh you know terrible unknown old evil force yeah, I wouldn't call it subversive, like playing up the female friendships. And it's certainly not unusual in horror, but it does feel unusual in in a story that's set in a an artistic academy. And mm-hmm. it certainly feels very different from Neon Demon. Because as you say, there there's a sense when she first walks in, you know, oh, these are, they're all ballerinas. Um, they're all in competition. They're all like, they're all young. They're all students. They're strangers. They're European. She's American. There are so many divisions between them that I feel we're really set up to expect a certain amount of cattiness and competition. Mm -hmm. And then you expect in a horror story for that to be highlighted as the, the drama builds up as the terror builds up. And instead what you get is her forming relationship after relationship with people who look to her for help, who look to her for guidance, who look to her for input, Mm -hmm. um, which she's not really equipped to provide in part because she's being drugged. 
I think it's it's certainly not subversive having a a female villain. I mean, this the archetype of the the woman who is a mystery because she has some kind of power and therefore she's a witch and she needs to be destroyed is centuries upon centuries old and frankly a little bit depressing. But the fact that we set up so early, like Pat is killed by what certainly seems to be a masculine. Yeah. A something. Yeah. I mean, the fact that she's I and I, I what, what hairy arms? What kills sure. her? It's Very got hairy, hairy arms, arms, right? But it, she's on a she's on the at least the second story. Like that's yeah. pretty well spatially established. Yeah. yeah, I assume it's some kind of demon. Like I assume it's yeah. something sent to kill her. But we get that setup of something with a big masculine hairy arm murdering her. Mm-hmm. And then we're introduced to the big threatening uh, silent male who we're expected to think is the killer. And then we're introduced to the soft, more effeminate uh, male who were <laughs> with feathered hair who were introduced to as he's completely under the thumb of the women who run this academy. And then we're introduced to the blind man who, well, maybe he isn't really blind. Like <laughs> there are so many red herrings yeah. that were given in terms of who's the murderer here. So it feels maybe not subversive, but at least like a bit of twist, a bit of a twist that it turns out to be, oh, it's witches. <laughs> it's, it's just witches. It's surprising. <laughs> and it is surprising the relationships between the dancers, I think, is surprising. You you do, because you expect, you know, when she first gets there, they inform her that she can't stay at the academy. She must stay uh, off, we'll call it off campus. It's not a campus, but we'll call it off campus with Olga, I believe her name is. And uh, and Olga to, uh, seems to be the most, uh, the, the cattiest of all of them, the most uh, dis- disliked. But they get along great. And she wants to stay there and, and is kind of not wanting, you know, when they say, hey, we've got a room here, uh, she resists. She wants to continue staying with this this uh, this person, uh, even though she has to pay to do it. And so that's kind of surprising. Scott, I I believe that uh, names starting with S are the names of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I forgot about that. Uh, oh, it's a nice little moment. I don't know. Do you, do you <laughs> Keith? Do you see anything subversive in this? I, I'm just here to pose a question. No, I, I, I'm kind of with you. It is uh, kind of with Scott, where it's, it is ultimately a film about about offing women and but also with you Tasha and, and that that there are twists on that and they're interesting twists but I don't, I don't think they're necessarily driven by any sort of desire to subvert the sexual dynamics of the of, of the thriller yeah that's not really Argento's no. style <laughs> I wouldn't think so I do find it interesting that when Susie needs an expert in explaining female power to her <laughs> she goes to a series of older academic mm-hmm. men who sit down and I wouldn't quite call it mansplaining because she's not a witch she doesn't know about witches she hasn't written books about witches. They're not telling her about her own field, but I think it the is explaining. Explaining, yeah, ex, <laughs> at, at, explaining. At incredible length. <laughs> <laughs> All right, those are kind of draggy sequences, yeah. and it's strange that it's two different people yeah. in a row. Yeah, it really is. But at the same time, I'll, this allow my colleague to pick up where I left off. <laughs> I, <couldn't>, yeah, <laughs> I just like, happen to have this, somebody this, here. The scene, the scene that has already gone on way too long. So somebody else, I'm going to pass the baton to somebody who's going to take it even longer. But those scenes are interesting in a way because they're so far outside the hermetic, like alternately dwarfing and claustrophobic space that the rest of the film takes place in. They take place outdoors. You get this clear, sunny blue sky. You get the camera looking up like through Susie at like the larger world. And there's just a sense of like, now we're in a nice safe space, a, a place sensibly run by men. Oh, okay. That's, Intelligent, that's, okay. researched men who think logically and have categorized uh, all of this like mysterious, scary female power <laughs> okay. and can explain it to you mechanically. Okay. That, 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 I like that. That's it's just, yeah. it's, I, and I don't have any feelings about that one way or the other. I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting contrast and I think it nicely sets up the feeling of dread when she goes back into that space. Oh, yeah. there's also, uh, in, in Red Herringville, there's also the evil doctor who's drugging her, obviously. Oh, right. So. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I mean, I, I characterize that scene as the scene that I go to the bathroom during. Because <laughs> there's really nothing, uh, uh, not much of interest there for me. That seems like a good place to leave it, um, now that we have explained uh, the film. Uh, <laughs> and we'll be back in just a moment with listener feedback. Now let's turn our attention to listener feedback. 
our pairing of Memento and Finding Dory led listeners to share their theories about those movies. Well, mostly Memento, since Finding Dory doesn't lend itself to much theorizing. Scott, can you share our first letter? Can I? <laughs> I can. Uh, a listener named Dickinson, who begins his letter by recounting that he watched Memento once a day for three days straight when it first came out, has a question about a shot late in the film in which Leonard, played by Guy Pierce, can be seen in bed with his wife. As Leonard drives off and he has his last internal monologue, there's a brief shot of him lying in bed with his wife. But he has tattoos, specifically the ones about his wife's rape and murder, and I've done it, quote-unquote, for commemorating him getting the perp. Was that some sort of, quote-unquote, real memory? Was it his imagination? If it was a real memory, does that mean there was a point in time where Leonard, post-short-term memory loss event, but with his wife still alive, had already started collecting tattoos and already manipulating himself with lies. Was his wife manipulating him to motivate him to get the uh, the bad guys? Uh, we clearly see the top tattoo on his chest is a sentence mirrored that has the word raped and M dot 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 and in full reads raped and murdered. But in that brief scene, his wife is clearly still alive lying right next to him. That brief scene has haunted me ever since this movie premiered and no amount of repeat viewings has solved this for me. Am I just missing something? Uh, that That's an amazing shot, actually. And it's, it's very brief, and it's something that stuck with me, too. I, I think it's symbolic. I don't think it's actually a, a, a real event that happens in the world. I think it's the closest thing that Leonard has to a moment of happiness and fulfillment in the movie, which is a flash of himself reunited with his wife and the last tattoo he needs finally in place. Um, so in that moment, he has everything that character has looked for in the entire movie. At the same time, we know he's really not going to get either. And I, I think it's a really sad, uh, poignant shot. I'm comfortable with your uh, interpretation of that. I mean, I'm with Keith. I, I don't think that there's any way the timeline could work to make that any sort of real shot. Mm-hmm. I don't think that he would have the uh, John G. raped and murdered my wife uh, tattoo if she was there. I don't think he would have had any of the tattoos uh, if she was there. I think that this is something that he is visualizing to represent I mean, we are led to believe that he can create new memories if he needs to create new new memories. The The entire construct that led him on the, this journey seems to be a construct. So it seems to me that this is him consciously constructing a memory for himself that's going to be part of the story that he's built to keep himself going. Tasha, we also received a letter from a listener with some professional insight into Leonard's frame of mind. Care to share it? Sure thing. JP writes, the more I rewatch Memento, the less I see a man seeking revenge and the more I see a man who's desperate to maintain a sense of purpose in his life. As long as Leonard thinks the mystery is unsolved, he'll always have a goal to work toward. He can't bear the thought of living in a hospital for the rest of his life like Sammy Jankis. I've spent many years in the world of cognitive behavioral therapy, interacting with people who suffer from severe clinical depression. People who feel like they have no reason to get out of bed in the morning, who can't experience pleasure and have nothing to look forward to. I'm not trying to compare clinical depression with memory loss, but to me, the image of Jank of spending the rest of his life in the hospital doing nothing is heartbreaking. I think one reason Memento continues to resonate is that we can all relate to the search for identity and meaning. Leonard tricks himself into believing an open-ended revenge narrative, so he'll continue to have a purpose in life that gets him out of bed in the morning. I think that's also why it's kind of hard to imagine what happens after the last frame of the movie. I'm not sure where Leonard goes from here. Yeah, and I think what the letter writer also speaks to how f- effective the film is at telling us how our how we work and how our 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 memories work and how uh you know we trick ourselves and lie to ourselves and and um it's a conceptual way to reveal something very fundamental i guess about um the human experience and the human mind and he I, I talked a little in that podcast about lines of dialogue that in any other movie might seem too blatant, like spelling out the text too clearly and how how much we need them in Memento to follow along with what's happening to shape our understanding of the character and where he is at any given point in time. And he spells out, I think, very clearly that he needs something to get him out of bed in the morning. He needs something to pursue. And that even if he does not remember having actually accomplished what he's set out to accomplish, it will be okay because he will have accomplished something. It will still be out in the world regardless of how he feels about it. Which, I mean, if you want to talk about a a metaphor for clinical depression, the idea that if you accomplish something, it's worthwhile, even if you can't feel anything about it. I mean, that's, (laughs) it's a very depressing thought, but it's still a motivating thought. 
Finally, if we're going to talk about the base truth of Memento, there's probably no better place to go than straight to the source. Here's what Mac in Virginia has to say about that. Just wanted to chime in with a bit of trivia regarding what really happened in the plot of Memento, at least according to Christopher Nolan. If you listen to the audio commentary on the special edition DVD, towards the end of the film, Nolan actually addresses whether or not Teddy is telling the truth about Leonard's past. If that sounds like it takes away something from the fun of the movie, it does, at least until you listen again and hear a completely different account. It turns out Nolan recorded several variations of his answer, and the DVD randomly chooses one to play, and one he claims that Teddy is telling the truth. In another, he calls Teddy an obvious liar. In another, the commentary just starts running backwards. <laughs> Mac also adds a link to a Film School Rejects article about this topic, which we've posted on our Facebook page. God bless Christopher Nolan. Yeah, I, good I, for him. I, I never, I was, I, I was never an obsessive enough with Memento uh, to explore that disc, which is one of the more confounding, notoriously confounding DVDs ever released. It really just is. Like how, I just want to watch the movie. How do I do that? You have for to God, pass an exam. <laughs> oh, right. The Blu-ray doesn't have that. I, Everybody I, hated it. Hated yeah. it so much. It actually got a lot of press attention in the days before, uh, like there were unboxing videos and the the accoutrements of every disc had to be reviewed separately from the disc itself. Uh, it got a lot of attention because people absolutely loathed it. <laughs> I miss when people cared about DVDs and Blu-rays. <laughs> Well, that's such a great. That's so. That's such an awesome thing for Nolan to do, uh, just because you know, you know my, you know my feelings about the, the about the fallacy of intent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good to have uh, a, a director weigh in with multiple interpretations of his work, and it's it's nice too because I mean the drive to erase ambiguity is such a strong human drive, the drive to to understand and interpret and to have one definitive answer. And I feel like that's an awful lot of what drives like the the immense fury that people get into on the internet over questions like, is what happened in American Psycho real? Or is, uh, is Teddy a liar or is he telling the truth? People get so angry about their opinions on these things because they want to have a definitive answer. And Christopher Nolan is not refusing to offer an answer and thus suggesting, you know, with like with you're so vain, there's an answer, but you can't have it or you can only have it after a, a certain very elongated <laughs> period of time. <laughs> He's saying, sure, there's a one definitive answer. Here's 12. Of yeah, them. I, I think the Soprano, the end, the la- ending of the Sopranos is a, a classic example of that, too. They st- people still get upset about uh, what happened, what happened when it cut to black. Delicious right. ambiguity. Well, Love it. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. And call that number. We don't get enough phone calls. We're lonely. Genevieve is very lonely. (laughs) All by And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll shift into the world of the Neon Demon. You'll also get to hear this. In a Folks, lot, in a lot of do not show these films to your babies. <laughs> no, these, are not, no. these are not movies for babies. Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And follow us on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod. So you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be rolling around in our razor wire room. Thanks for listening. <laughs>